This talk was given by Valerie Meiju Lynette at the Zen Center of New York City. Meiju is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So um, my name is Meiju, and I am uh, a, student, a lay student who lives up near the monastery. Um, but Brooklyn is my hometown. I spent the first 17 years of my life here. And this, is, um, this temple is, is re really one of the first practice places that I came to um, when Miyotai Sensei was the teacher who helped get um, this Sangha and this um, temple started down here. So thank you for welcoming me back. This is um, part of my training. This is one of the first talks that I'm ever giving. So um, our training never ends, and um, I appreciate your helping me with that. So I wanted to talk about time today. And um, in a lot of the way that um, we explore the Dharma together in, in this... Um, in this training is through teaching stories. And so um, this one is an exchange between um, a beloved Zen master named Zhao Zhou, or some people um, call him Joshu, it's his Japanese name, and um, between him and a monastic. And it's found in a collection of sayings of Joshu's. And um, although this happened in China, um, in ninth century China, we're really invited to understand this exchange as something that's happening right here, right now. So we get to step into this story and make it our own, make it relevant. So it goes like this. A monk asked Zhao Zhou, during 24 hours, how is mind put to use? And Zhao Zhou said, you are being used by 24 hours, but I am using the 24 hours. Which of these times are you talking about? And so a seeker, a student, me, you, asks their teacher, What's the best way to use my mind throughout the day? Or how should I use my time? And the question just jumps off the page to me as one that any of us might have. It feels very um, true and urgent to me. And so we can ask, what is this exchange really about? Is the student inquiring about time management when she says, during 24 hours, how is mind put to use? Is Zhao Zhou simply talking about efficiency when he replies, you are being used by the 24 hours, but I am using them? It seems like there's something else happening here. And after all these years of Zen, practice and training, I still often find myself in a battle with time, 
relating to it anxiously, objectifying it, feeling like there's not enough of it. And if I'm honest, underneath all that is really an anxiety that I might be wasting my life. So some of you might relate to that. And I must admit that timeliness, being prompt, is a code I've yet to crack. But I don't think that this encounter is about time in that sense, although it doesn't exclude it. And in terms of Zen practice and training, our formal training here, this exchange might bring up questions of how much time we should give to Zazen or our silent retreat, if we do that, when our job requires attention or our family needs us or there is an important meeting in our community or an injustice that requires action. And then what about the role of rest and relaxation? How much time should we give to that? And in the largest sense, this encounter could raise the question of our entire spiritual existence. What's it mean to live well? How do we make that manifest in the relative world of time where we each have a limited amount of minutes, an unpredictable number of seconds alive on this earth. We just don't know. And as a lay practitioner, I think about scheduling a lot. How do I organize my day when there are so many choices and responsibilities, bills to pay, an earth on fire, bodies suffering? And there's gardens I want to plant, and poems I want to write, and friends I'd like to enjoy. And I can feel my stomach already starting to tighten, and my thoughts get agitated, and my heart rate pick up, even talking about this now. And already my mind is off and running, proliferating streams of thought. And here I go again, being used by the 24 hours. And we probably all know the experience of that in our own way. It's the chaotic realm of relative time in which many of us operate most of the time. Rushing to work, worrying if we can complete our daily tasks, distracted, overwhelmed, bodies in one place, our minds somewhere else. It's the disorganization of our minds when we're spun around by our everyday lives, the ups and downs, of our emotions, distracted by each passing thought, or even things that are important, that need attention, the news. And this is is what happens when I avoid zazen in the morning, and suddenly I decide it's the perfect time to start doing all the little things that I put off earlier, folding laundry, watering plants, And it's the growing tension in my belly as I move away from whatever the big thing in front of me is. There's always something big right in front of us. 
So the relative world needs our attention desperately. The clothes need to be put away. A parent's health is failing. My government is literally caging children and their parents on the southern border in my name. I've been off of news for a day or two because I was getting ready to come here and then did a retreat and one of my Dharma sisters told me about the most recent shooting and racist manifesto that went along with that. So we need to attend to these things. And they're not all equally urgent, but every one of them requires us to show up and respond. So doing nothing is not an option. And still, how can we live in such a way as to not get used by each piece of news that comes across the transom, each text that arrives on our phone, each thought that crosses our mind in zazen? And um, at the monastery in the temple, there's this model of, of efficiency, which I associate with Zen training. And I aspire to be efficient and on task. I think it's, it's a way, it can be a way to show respect and honor resources and relationships. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet I think it's good to keep checking with ourselves to make sure we're not mistaking efficiency for sanctity. Do we value that way of using time as inherently sacred? How much of that has to do with the Dharma, like attending to the moment, staying awake? And how much of that efficiency is informed by social and cultural forces and conditioning? I've been asking myself these questions, like how much of um, how we do things with time in our training is cultural to Japan or to North American Buddhists or to white dominant sanghas or to capitalist or patriarchal societies like ours, ones that prize speed and getting things done over other more humanizing values. I don't know the answer to these questions. I don't feel like I can neatly draw the line between um, culture and dharma in terms of how we relate to time. But we do know that Buddhist practice is about being free within our human lives, not attaching to some form or idea, and certainly not prizing the goal of accomplishment over all else. So what is true caretaking? Can we wash the dishes with great attention and love within the structure of our day and allow that to be deeply humanizing without perceiving it as a checklist task or ourselves as part of a well-oiled machine. Sometimes in session, the monastery, when like it can feel really good on dish crew, but it can also feel like, you know, there's just a little difference um, in my mind sometimes between that machine 
and um, really caretaking, like each other, not just the dishes. So can we bring this perspective back to our office job, our family life, our social activism? And Zen training gives us opportunities all the time to explore this. For example, we've got the formal um, way that we take a meal, orioki. And um, it's a silent meal in which we, we occupy different roles of serving food and being served. And anyone who's experienced this liturgy knows that it can either be embodied as a powerful gift of giving and receiving or executed as a mechanical repetition. Maybe our bones are tired, our minds get dull. And both the server and the one being served experience that difference. It's either an assembly line or a profound teaching. And even a bow, we've already bowed to each other um, lots this morning. And um, You know, it can be a casual thing that we do with our hands, or like a, a Zen greeting, or a gesture pointing to the nature of reality, our essential identity. Is it two distinct things? Is it one? Are we? Zhao Zhou's, you're being used by the 24 hours, but I'm using them. Which of these times are you talking about? Is an invitation to look again at our minds. Perhaps he's pointing to a different question than the one the student asked. Maybe he wants to turn our attention to what is this time that we're talking about? Or what's the nature of our mind that creates this time? And what if there's a reality that isn't about relating to time as a thing or relating to my mind as a thing? This isn't abstract or philosophical. This is really about how we can live freely, like how we answer this question or respond to it. And so Zhao Zhao gives us a possibility of another kind of time to live within or to live as. And it's not really the kind of time that we know conventionally. And so we're lay practitioners here and we can use the stuff of our, of our relative world, our cars, our relationships, our roles, our identities, our jobs, our feelings, to embody this other kind of time. How do we do that? How do we use this invented form called 24 hours of the day, or any other form for that matter? The Dharma name that you might have, your robe, your racial identity, your age, your gender identity, social status, and still 
live out of the essential truth that Buddhism teaches. We make use of ourselves. This is an undivided life in which my mind's not separate from hours or minutes or any other thing. It defies logic. Sometimes during chanting and bowing or meditation, we might have the experience of our individual bodies and voices becoming one big body, the voice of the whole sangha, or even beyond that. And so this is a little taste of the non-dual reality that Buddhism teaches. And that Buddhism teaches is ever-present. But most of us, most of the time, this is not how we, this is not how we experience our, our lives. But it gives us a clue about how to be free. And um, I had the privilege with some um, other people here today of uh, taking Gina Sharp's retreat yesterday. And um, she was talking about how um, in Western Buddhism we emphasize um, individual liberation. It's kind of like our, our, you know, even though we have a bodhisattva vow, that our culture is so individualistic that, um, you know, we can just... um, still think about freeing ourselves, our minds. And she said so plainly in a way that I really deeply appreciated. She said, um, I'm just not interested in teaching uh, about individual liberation. I'm, I'm interested in teaching collective liberation because that's, um, that's, how, that's, how it, that's how it is. We can't. We can't get ours um, alone. So our teachers remind us that all this can stay in the realm of um, intellectual cud chewing if we don't actually practice and make this real for ourselves. There's a passage from a book called The Sabbath, written by uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And it says, there's a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. And it sounds like this could be a description of Zazen, but it's part of um, his exploration of sacred time. And um, just a little bit about him. He was a Polish-born um, professor of Jewish mysticism and a philosopher. And he, um, he's asking um, about the same thing that um, Zhao Zhao is pointing to. And it feels to me like they're having a conversation across um, space and time. 
And, you know, for me, it was important just to understand a little bit where he was coming from. He escaped Poland not long, Heschel did, not long um, before the German invasion. And he ultimately immigrated to New York in 1940. And his, mother's, um, his mother and three of his sisters were killed by the Nazis in Eastern Europe. And then when he came to the U.S., he became very involved with the Vietnam uh, anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. And um, after marching with Dr. King in Alabama, he said, when I marched in Selma, my feet were praying. So while he entered through a particular religious uh, tradition, a faith tradition, he lived and taught from the conviction that... um, Religious experience is fundamentally a human impulse and not specifically a Jewish one or a Buddhist one. And so um, just for some context, the Sabbath is, um, for those who aren't familiar, is a um, tradition um, within Judaism that's um, on the most basic level, it's a day of rest. It starts Friday night and goes through till um, Saturday at sundown. And it's a, a, f- a practice, a, a form that we might say in, in Zen lingo, that comes out of a lay tradition that has created a particular doorway for accessing the sacred within our everyday lives. And, um, you know, for me, I grew up um, as an assimilated secular Jew here in Brooklyn, and I had no interest at all in organized religion or God or any um, connection even to my ancestral tradition. But once when I was in high school, I had an experience of Sabbath that was transformative. And it really wasn't about my Jewish identity. It was more about having um, an experience that I now call religious in the midst of everyday life, a week, a normal week. Touching holiness in the midst of nothing special. Experiencing liturgy that was meaningful while doing regular things like reading and eating and being together in an undistracted way. And I hadn't been introduced to formal zazen yet. But looking back, I associate that experience, that weekend, with my first taste of it. And the the, um, Zen master Dogen says, in the mundane, nothing is sacred. In sacredness, nothing is mundane. And so um, I was... We were freshmen in high school here in Brooklyn, and Ariel was the only friend that I had who um, I ever knew who kept the Sabbath. And she was more observant at age 14 than her parents were. And I slept over at her house that weekend, and we lit candles, we washed our hands. We had a meal together on Friday with her family. There wasn't any radio. There wasn't any TV. It was pretty simple. But I do remember she explained to me about how the Sabbath is considered to be like the coming of a bride or a queen. 
I think of this sometimes like on the first night of session at the monastery. It's like this, there's something in the air. It's a little like we're all holding our breath and something's coming. I mean, we're, we're coming, but... Um, and so um, there were a few songs about this that we sung. And um, the preparations to let go of the busyness of the week weren't treated as a luxury or like a vacation. It was just very matter-of-fact, intentional, something that was going to happen every week, no matter what. And instead of going to a party or hopping on the subway or listening to music that weekend, it was slower and quieter. I don't think we meant, we walked wherever we needed to go, but I don't think we went too many places. We just didn't have plans. And um, it's hard now to say exactly why that was so important or impactful. And I was thinking um, maybe, you know, it was because there really wasn't anything so special about it. And it's kind of like when somebody asks you, you know, what did you do um, on Sunday morning? Or like, what, you know, if you do a silent retreat, what, what happened? What was that like? Um, you know, we chanted, we bowed, we sat still. Nothing really happened. And I remember walking out of Ariel's brownstone onto a familiar street not, not far from here, and my, heat, my feet hit the pavement, and it was just like always, but there was also something else. There was kind of like, like the, I remember the sidewalk kind of sparkled. <laughs> and all of me was just right there, and all of the city was just right there, and it kind of felt like... Um, like a slow dance where you don't know who's leading and you sort of melt into the music. And so sometimes, it's been a while, but one of my favorite things to do um, still in, uh, when I'm in New York City is to be on the subway. I kind of feel like I, I grew up on the subway. And um, if you ever like, you know, do a, a, maybe a morning service or like a day of sitting and just kind of look at people after that, like sometimes you can just kind of get out of the way and actually see people. And so while going up to the monastery is um, a radical challenge to our secular life and the demands of that, it's equally radical to do so here within our familiar lives, our kitchen table, our gritty family situations or whatever might be going on in our neighborhoods, and particularly surrounded by family. That's, um, I feel like that's the real test, at least for me. Um, and so even just sitting here together, we're going against the stream to be in the world but not of the world, to use time rather than be used by it. And when we understand using time in this way, it becomes a necessity because it's a response to suffering. And so, you know, I was thinking about this, especially when there's news, you know, like that um, of, about human violence and, and we're here sitting 
I think, you know, it's a privilege, but it's not a luxury. So to hold it that way. And so how do we do it? How do we do it? Heschel's curiosity was about how to observe everyday holiness. And if you don't relate to the word holy, um, Buddhism might call it the absolute. And Susanna Heschel refers to her father's view of the Sabbath as an architecture of time. We're building that here. We build that in Zazen also. Um, It's a simplified space a creation of sacred time that helps us perceive holiness right here in our hurt, in our tears, in our heat. It's so simple. This is, this is um, what Zazen offers us. Just our breath, eyes lowered, seeing thoughts, and um, Gina Sharp offered yesterday, rather than, than the um, way that we might talk about letting them go, she, she talked about being with them or letting them be. Like we're not trying to get rid of anything. That's really important. We're stripping ourselves down to the bone, and we do this together. And how does this change a life? It's so simple. How does it change a mind. And um, one of my favorite touchstones for lay practice, partially because, well, partially because I'm a writer and this, um, this teacher, Dahui, communicated through letters to his lay students, but also because the, um, it's so, it just feels like it could be happening right now. Um, but this is from um, a book called Swampland Flowers, which is a collection of letters that he wrote to his lay students. Um, and that's from the 11th century. He's an 11th century teacher in China. And the chapters are named um, delicious things like don't cling to stillness and don't pray for relief. And this is my favorite one, dealing with situations because we all have situations to deal with. Um, it's very straight, straight talking guide. And so the letter I want to read from is called Stillness and Commotion. And I just like imagine receiving a letter like this from Shugen or one of my teachers. So the, the letter is, right in the midst of the hubbub, you mustn't forget the busyness of the bamboo chair and reed cushion, which is meditation. Usually to meditate, you set your mind on a still concentration point, but you must be able to use it right in the midst of hubbub. If you have no strength amidst commotion, after all, it's as if you've never made any effort in stillness. And then he goes on to quote um, Vimalakirti, who's a, a sort of famous lay practitioner who lived um, at the same time of the Buddha. And he was held up. Vimalakirti is like a, a model of, of Mahayana Buddhist practice. And so Dawi continues the letter and says, Vimalakirti said it's like this. The high plateau does not produce the lotus flowers. It's the mire of the low swamplands that produces these flowers. 
Da Hui concludes the letter, when you like the quiet and hate the hubbub, this is just the time to apply effort. Suddenly, when in the midst of the hubbub, you topple the scene of quietude, that power surpasses the meditation seat and cushion by a million billion times. And I love that there's the word hubbub in a, well, at least that's the translation of an ancient Buddhist text. I feel in good company. And some of us come to Buddhist practice desperately wanting to be free. Not spun around by moods, not dependent on the world around us to grant happiness or good news, not waiting for the political, social, familial conditions or the weather to be right. I know this was true for me. And that's, that's to be clear, that's not to say that we shouldn't work fiercely for a just society and to put an end to all of the isms and forms of, of oppression that outwardly keep us bound. It's necessary to do that. It's just that if, we, if all we do is depend on the relative world to grant our liberation, we're in for a really long, painful wait. Gina Sharp was said yesterday, like, like, we're the ones. We have to do this now, like right now, here. Can we realize who we already are, truly unbound and limitless, capable of loving each other and ourselves deeply, while still confronting the hubbub, the barriers? I overwrote this talk, so I'm looking to see. Heschel wrote, gallantly, ceaselessly, quietly, humans must fight for inner liberty. Inner liberty depends upon being exempt from domination of things, as well as from domination of people. This is our constant problem, how to live with people and remain free, how to live with things and remain independent. The Dharma reveals this is a unified life. The swamplands are not separate from the lotus flowers. And yet there's a very real difference between a day of session and a full lineup of trauma therapy clients, or between living in my body and yours. We all go home to different things. But Buddhism teaches wholeness. How do we bridge the gap that we so often experience between what we consider practice and not practice, good and less good, the monastery, the subway, how special it is to clean the bathrooms at the monastery and how annoying it is to do it at home? (laughs) I guess that hit a chord. what we think it means to wear a black robe rather than a white one, or a white one rather than a gray one, or any robe at all, 
rather than our street clothes. And it seems silly when I say it like this, but this is what we do. We create distinctions in our mind and we believe them. And, you know, we kind of let ourselves off the hook with certain things like that. But Buddhism teaches this is the root of suffering, this separation. And these delusions writ large can do a great deal of harm. We just need to look around and see that. So zazen is one doorway to freedom, but it isn't an escape hatch. We don't have to run away from our lives. That's what that we is. That's what all of the teachers are telling us. Um, you know. Zazen doesn't just happen on the cushion. I was reading an, an interview with Sharon Salzberg, who was talking about an Indian um, female teacher who was a friend of Deepa Ma's, who's also another Indian teacher. And, and this woman, um, whatever the constraints of her life were previously to becoming a teacher, her father-in-law would not let her meditate. That was, you know, in her time and her place, she had this barrier. And... So Sharon Salzberg, but, you know, so Sharon, she became a teacher. Sharon Salzberg asked her, how did you become a teacher? How did you learn what you needed to learn to become a teacher, given that, you know, you had this hindrance? And she said, I was very mindful when I stirred the rice, when I was making a meal. And, like, this isn't just, um, like, a cute Buddhist mindfulness saying. This is how this, this is how she did it. We have rice pots. We have whatever our rice pots are. Dharma teachers like to talk about zazen by telling us what it isn't. And um, I'm reminded of Daida Roshi's opening remarks at the beginning of every Intro to Zen training weekend um, when he was still alive. He was, he's the founder, for people who are new, he was the founder of the, this school, Mountains and Rivers Order. And um, so he'd always give the same speech on Friday nights. Um, and my memory is that there was this litany that he would say with conviction. And it was like this impassioned list about what Zazen wasn't. And he'd kind of ramp up to a, fe uh, a fevered pitch. And I bet you some people in the Zendo could recite it. Because um, if you lived there during that time, you heard it every month. Um, but... Um, I can't say it with his inflection, and I know I'm forgetting a big chunk of it, but it concluded with something like, Zazen is not mere contemplation or introspection. It's not meditation. It's not quieting the mind or focusing the mind. Zazen is a way of using your mind. It's a way of living your life and doing it with other people. And Dido's um, Dharma sister, Charlotte Joko Beck, has a chapter in her book, Everyday Zen, called What Practice is Not?, and her list, to summarize, includes um, practice is not about achieving some blissful state, having visions or seeing white lights or pink or blue ones, cultivating special powers. It's not about personal power or some bodily states in which we're never ill. She says, practice isn't about being anything. She says, it's about looking in instead of looking out. And she cautions that the kind of spiritual training concerned with getting something is a subtle form of athleticism. So in some way, we can relax. 
in some way. I mean, we need to know ourselves, but most of us can relax a little bit. And this um, reminds me of another thing that I used to say, which I was both attracted and repelled by. Um, he used to say about Zazen, he'd call it the great bullshit burning furnace, which is very Dido. Skipping, I'm skipping all the good stuff. Yeah. So um, coming back to Zhao Zhou's reply to the monastic, which of these times are you talking about? And our freedom might depend on how we answer this question for ourselves. What does it mean to truly make use of our life unconstrained by our ordinary ways of understanding and compartmentalizing? And our understanding is always going to be limited if we just use our intellect. So I think of Deepa Ma, who is, uh, I was mentioning before, she's an Indian meditation master and Theravadan lay practitioner. And she was prominent in Asia and then also in the United States. She influenced um, kind of the, one of the first waves of North American Buddhist practitioners um, um, who started the Insight Meditation Society. So she, she was in the 70s. She taught um, Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And um, Deepa Ma was known for um, the intensity um, and stillness of her sitting practice. And she lived um, in a hot, crowded apartment um, in Calcutta, India, with her daughter and her grandchild. And she practiced among the chaos of her life. She was a widowed housewife with students from across the globe showing up to study with her at all hours of the day or night. People would just like pour into her little apartment. She'd always feed people. She'd pet them. She was a love, but she was serious. And she um, urged some of her students to sit silently for two days at a time when she felt like that was the edge of their capacity and their growth. And at the same time, she'd instruct um, other students who insisted that they didn't have any time um, to, in their lives to meditate, to simply count a few of their breaths before they fell asleep at night. And she recognized that no moment's too small And it wasn't that time's irrelevant, but it also wasn't the point. The effort to awaken and using what's available was the point. And Deepa Ma was also known as the mother to all. She couldn't have a child. She couldn't conceive a child until later in life. And then um, she had a few miscarriages. But she took seriously her husband before he died. He, He advised her to treat all beings as if they were her very own children. And she... Um, many of her students said that they, they marveled that they'd never felt so loved by another human being before. And this reminds me, I'm, we're short on time, but uh, there was a really beautiful um, exercise that Gina Sharp did with us where we basically, um, I was shocked because I would have not thought I would want to look into somebody's eyes um, and um, offer them loving kindness in this way um, and have it... Um, not be a cheesy experience, but it was so powerful. And I imagined, oh, maybe this is some of what Deepa Ma's students felt. Um, 
So she, um, she used the 24 hours not just to drop off her body and mind in informal meditation, but she extended it to every corner of her life. And um, she said, if you bless those around you, this will inspire you to be attentive in every moment. And she said, meditation is love. And this isn't like a mushy, hallmark kind of love. It was an actualized, egoless love that isn't dependent on anything in particular. This is how she used her mind and time. She told a student of hers who was an airline pilot to send loving kindness to all the passengers uh, and colleagues uh, on the plane. And she'd bless planes when she boarded them. And it says she'd bless cars and drivers and the person who pumped the gas. And she'd bless people top to bottom, including their hair, chanting over them. And um, I think of this blessing maybe like a bow. And so what would it be uh, to spend the day doing this? Gina Sharp said the opposite of fear isn't courage, it's love. And what would it be like to be on the receiving end of this? So it's helpful to have models and examples and teachers to provide awakened embodiments, each other, to look around. Um, But it all comes down to each one of us. How will we breathe life into our practice? How will we each live freely within our own individual hubbub and the collective hubbub? How will we realize our true nature, which isn't a thing or an it? And how will we bring our practice alive and do so in real time with each other? Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Jizo Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O. J-E-C-T.